This is a podcast from Minute Media. Born to rock around the clock. You can't say I'm not. And in case you forgot, I'm a king. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am here today with Jason Colvin, my continuous co-host, and we have our very special guest again with us today, number four episode with Mr. David Wright. David, how you doing today, man? Man, I am deaf and to my left is Jimmy D, and to my right on the mic is Jason C. Four weeks in a row on the Surely Airwaves, a guest spot on the show. Well, it's got to be Deaf Dave. Where's your hip-hop expert? Well, here he is. All the knowledge that I drop. Make suckers furious. You ask me how I am. It's not that mysterious. Surely you can't be serious. I top down, turn it up. Brass monkey in a cup. Turn in the final judgment and you'll know what's up. How devastating can a podcaster be? My name is David, but you can call me D. Woo, man, that is, oh, we're giving it up to you. Oh, that was fantastic. That is the best intro ever. I started the Chili KB Series history right there. Yeah, that's fantastic. So we start every, <laughs> before every time we hit the record button, I say to Jason, do you have something? He says, now, do you have something? And we just throw something at the beginning. And that was fantastic. That's definitely the best. That took ever time, effort, thought, rhymes. Off the top, man, off the dome. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> capture that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a backbeat to it, and I'm gonna let it just be the intro song for us every time. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Dave. It is great to have you here again. If you, dear listener, are just joining us for the very first time in this podcast, this is number four in a series that we are doing where we are looking back at 1980. 35 years ago this year, covering two of the most iconic albums of that year, Raising Hell by Run DMC and Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys. Dave has been our special guest with the massive hip-hop knowledge, bringing it, and just, man, you couldn't have finished any stronger than that intro. So I'm excited to jump back into it. Today, we are talking about Raising Hell track by track. We have covered the history of the Beastie Boys. We have covered Licensed Ill track by track. We have covered the history of hip hop itself as it leads up to Run DMC. And today we are going to be covering Raising Hell track by track. I am pumped. I can't wait. I can't wait. Dave, are you ready to go track by track to Raising Hell? First of all, in case I don't have a chance to say this at the end, I just want to thank y'all so much for giving me this opportunity to to come on here for this guest stint and talk about this stuff. I feel like you've just let me indulge myself and I hope everybody's enjoyed it. I think it's amazing that I have an opportunity to talk about Run DMC with two guys actually named D and J. <laughs> <laughs> I can sit here with, with Lee's on my legs and Adidas on my feet with D by my side and J with the beat. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic man that is fantastic dave we've had a great time with you man it's been fun to get to know you and and you have been an awesome awesome expert in this area so thank you for contributing to our show man yeah it's been a complete honor and just as a reminder to everyone Dave is an author. You can catch his books at galahadsdoom.com. We found out just this week also that he does a podcast. I don't know how we went this whole time and didn't know that, but he has got a podcast where he talks about soccer. It's a way to vent about your soccer feelings, right? Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big soccer fan, but specifically a fan of the American version of the game. So I'm a big major league soccer fan and U.S. national team fan. And 
I just do a quick little like news update type of podcast. I usually no more than 10 minutes long. So if someone's a, a, a very casual fan or a curious fan, but they don't really want to devote an hour and a half to a big deep dive, they can check in with my show, get get what they need and then be done beyond with their day. So it's called American Soccer Quick Kicks. Very nice. And and you got you got lambasted this week on Twitter for your thoughts <laughs> for your thoughts on the new soccer ball. Is that right? Yes, I got destroyed because they, they showed the new ball design for next year and it has flowers on it. I made the mistake of saying that you don't put flowers on a grown man's soccer ball. And I got completely eviscerated <laughs> by soccer Twitter for that one. I may have mentioned that um, my grandmother would be excited to see a ball that matches her drapes. <laughs> I don't think they like that too much. Before we jump into the album, I got a couple of things I want to point out. First of all, this album represents pretty much the epitome of the collaboration with Rick Rubin and Run DMC. He did go on to produce two more songs for them after this album. The first one was Christmas in Hollis. Which is their well-known holiday track. It was placed in Die Hard. It's kind of a annual, uh, it's, a, it's a perennial holiday hit, at least around my house it is. Hey, wait, wait, and, wait, wait. We, we can't blow past that, man. <laughs> this is Argyle's Christmas music that he plays for John McClane as they're taking the limo ride to Nakatomi Tower. Man, this is Christmas music. <laughs> That's right. Because the rhymes you hear are the rhymes of Daryl's, but each and every year we bust Christmas carols. The last song he did with them was Mary Mary, which came off their 1988 album Tougher Than Leather. And I want to mention that song because I happened to be in the crowd the night they were shooting the Mary Mary music video. It was in Albany, Georgia. I was with my friend from high school, Chris Graber. I know he's listening. Shout out to Chris. We were there that night when they were shooting the video and their camera was behind me and I'm in the video, but you kind of have to take my word for it. You can't see my face, but you got one skinny little white elbow pumping his fist in the air. I promise you that's me. Death yep. Dave's chicken wing. Famous elbow. <laughs> and and for your friend, I just have to say, what up, Chris? <laughs> That's what yeah, I was that, born to do, baby. <laughs> that, that summer of 1988, it seemed like the only two videos on MTV were Mary Mary and Pour Some Sugar on Me. <laughs> I was very happy to watch Mary Mary every time it came on. That's my elbow. That's yeah. fantastic, man. So uh, a note about the album cover for Raising Hell. You'll notice that just like with their first two albums, the only two people that appear on the cover are Daryl and Joe. You don't see Jam Master Jay in any of these first three album covers. And there's a good reason for that. Okay. Jam Master Jay was not signed to Profile Records. The only people that had contract Profile were Daryl and Joe. And so they had brought Jay in as a sideman for their road performances. He was for a long time never officially signed to the record deal. Even though you see him in some early photography, Profile wouldn't put him on the cover. Interesting. So I've got a little bit something on the album cover as well. Caroline Grayshock was the photographer and she's the one who took Cindy Lauper's She's So Unusual cover as well. All right. So before we go any further, this album was released May 27th of 1986. Run DMC is the first hip hop group to receive heavy rotation on MTV, grace the cover of Rolling Stone magazine and get a Grammy nomination. And a couple of quick background on the recording of the album. They had just come off of tour in 1985 and they went into a place called Chung King Studios in New York City. 
Now, Chungking became a huge studio for recording hip-hop and rap-style albums. You had Run DMC, LL Cool J, Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, Buster Rhymes, Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, Lauryn Hill, Outkast, Method Man, Nas, Lil Wayne, Kanye West, all of those guys, and some rock groups. Aerosmith, as we know, Beyonce, Depeche Mode, Destiny's Child, Fergie, and Lady Gaga all recorded at Chunking Studios at some point, but it had just gotten this name of Chunking Studios when they came in to start their recording process. Now, the producer on this one was different than the last two albums, which we kind of discussed. They had had Larry Smith as their producer for the last couple of albums. And as Dave mentioned on our last episode, Run had gotten a little tired of how much Larry was trying to put more music into the albums, although it was his brilliant idea when they were listening to Riot to put some rock into their music. But this album, they were using a new upstart DJ called Rick Rubin. So, you know, just remember the timeline from our first episode, the first album put out by Def Jam was LL Cool J's Radio, which came just after Crush Groove, late 1985, and it was produced by Rick Rubin. If you want more history on Run DMC and hip-hop and rap, go back and listen to our previous episode from last week, where Dave laid the knowledge on thick and strong. It is unbelievable the amount of knowledge that Dave brought on that episode. For sure. By the way, you mentioned Chunking Studios? Yes. That is also known as the Abbey Road of hip-hop. One thing I wanted to cover real quick, Raising Hell did not reach number one on the Billboard Hot 200. It made it all the way to number three. Do you know the two albums that kept Run DMC out of the top spots? I do. And we've talked about one at length and one in glancing. Mm -hmm. Okay. The number two. I'll give you. Yeah, go ahead and do number two and I'll give you a hint on number one. I'll give you a hint on number two. She made out with Adam Horowitz backstage at the Beastie Boys concert. <laughs> All right, well, I know it's Madonna, but I don't know the album. Uh, Madonna's True Blue, True Blue. Uh, on the strength of Open Your Heart and Papa Don't Preach and okay. uh, La Isla Bonita reached number two, September 20th, 1986. The number one album. Okay, so what? it's a soundtrack. What movie was everyone obsessed with in 1986? Top Gun. You got it. Ding, 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 ding. Top Gun, number one, Madonna, number two, Run DNC, number three. I mean, that's amazing that they're up there in with those two iconic albums. It's it's truly incredible, given that rap wasn't even um, in the mainstream a couple years before this. That's right. And this this was the first rap album to ever go platinum. Fantastic. Are you ready to dive in track by track, Dave? Let's do it. All right. The first song on the track list, Peter Piper. Now Peter, Piper, pick peppers, but run rock, rhyme, humpty, dumpty, fell, down, that's his heart, time, jackly, nimble, what, nimble, and he was quick, but jam, mass mud, faster jacks on Okay. We jump in and we are immediately made aware of how awesome these guys are at exchanging lyrics back and forth. It is brilliant. They'll do line, they'll do words, they'll do bits. It is so incredible how their rhythm is so in time with each other that they can sound like almost one person with two voices. It's amazing. You don't get that awesome John Bonham drum thump that you get at the beginning of License to Ill. But what you get is immediately this blistering reminder of just how great these two guys are together. 
what had become their trademark was switching back and forth like that in their delivery. But here they're they're letting you know right off the top they have taken things to a whole nother level, and it's and it just blows you away. They start off with this acapella beginning, and you're you're already just blown back against the wall. Yeah, and and similar to Ryman and Stealing, they're throwing in some literary references. It's more uh, nursery rhymes and you know young adult kind of reading, like with Rip Van Winkle and such. But you got to be smart to hear what they're saying, to know what they're saying. It's it's great stuff. I have to think that the Beastie Boys went. We need to do something like that when they pick their first song. Hey, they make a reference to Humpty Dumpty, Little Bo Peep, Rip Van Winkle, and the most amazing toy of the 1970s, Weebles. They wobble, but they don't fall down. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. (laughs) They also reference the DC Comics hero Flash when they say he's not Flash, but he's fast and his name is Jay. That's awesome. Yep. And the music that they've got behind it is, uh, again, it makes me think of girls. It's that very kind of plinkety xylophone style of music that they've got going with them, which is the perfect thing to put with a song that's referencing all these nursery rhymes and school stories. The bells are a sample of a song called Take Me to the Mardi Gras, which was by this jazz fusion kind of artist named Bob James. At the time that LL was working on his first album, he had a song called Rock the Bells. And he had heard Run DMC working with this Bob James sample and was going to use the same sample in his song Rock the Bells. And when Run found out about it, he got mad and confronted him. And so basically won the argument. So LL agreed to take this same sample from Take Me to the Mardi Gras out of his song. So now the album cut of Rock the Bells actually has no bells in it at all. Let's play a clip of that real quick. There it is, man. That's it. No question. That's it. So the whole song is about Jam Master Jay. Even though he had a self-titled song on the first album. So Peter Piper actually became his theme song. And it was the one that was most identified with Jam Master Jay. And in case you're not aware, he was killed in 2002 in an execution-style murder that for a long time was a cold case. There's just recently in the last year been some movement on that case. As a matter of fact, there was was an indictment one year ago and just uh, November of this year, the prosecution has said that they will not be seeking the death penalty, but they do have a couple of guys that uh, will be going to trial for it. But this was the song that they used uh, at Jamis Jay's funeral and in all his tributes. He was known as Peter Piper, and this was this was the song they used to honor him. I heard Daryl McDaniels talk about this song, and when he was listening to the radio when this album was released, the DJ came on and said, we have got the most amazing, awesome hit of the summer from Run DMC. You're not even going to believe it. It's so great. And Daryl McDaniel's thinking they're getting ready to play Peter Piper. Peter Piper <laughs> is the one. And of course it was not. And we'll talk about that song here in just a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> but this is a hit right out of the, right out of the gate. Uh, this is an awesome song. It's one of their classics, one of their best loved songs. It is awesome. It's a great starter to the album. Absolutely. Ready for song number two? Yes. Song number two on the album called... It's tricky. This beat is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. Here we go. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. All right. Now, this one I'm very familiar with because they played it on MTV all the time. This reached number 57 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, released February 8th of 1987. Let's talk about what it samples. 1979, The Knack, My Sharona. When I read that, I was blown away. 
because I didn't really hear it until that came to my attention. Well, in 2006, the Knack actually sued Run DMC and their associates and some online stores for unlicensed use of this sample. And when they asked them, why did it take you 20 years to bring your case to court? They said, well, we just found out. (laughs) (laughs) We hadn't heard it before. Come on, man. (laughs) 20 years to bring this case to court. Right. You're just now becoming aware of the track. It's tricky. Wow. Yep. And of course, they structured the chorus around Mickey. Yeah. Okay. We got to talk about that too, because that to me is clear as a bell, right? Yep. It's tricky to rock a rhyme, to rock a rhyme that's right on time. It's tricky, right? Then you've got, oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Mickey. Yep. Yes. Those are identical. Yeah. And it's guaranteed to be an earworm. It's going to be stuck in your head. You're not, (laughs) but it's also kind of a tongue twister. It is, it's difficult to spit that out as fast as they do. And that's what the song is really about is it's not as easy to be a rapper as you think it might be. You know, people uh, dissing on them because it's not, not real music. It's not singing, but they're saying, Hey, you try to do this. You see if you can do this, Mr. Knox. It's tricky to rock a rhyme. That's right on time. It's tricky. Yep. Huge hit uh, on MTV. I know Penn and Teller in the video. It's, it's another strong track, man. Just coming out hot. Two two songs in a row. Boom. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they've got a positive message that wasn't happening in a whole lot of rap after the 80s. Uh, they talk about how they get offered dope and lots of coke, but they said they just leave it alone. And this kind of goes along with another song on the album where he talks about going to St. John's University. They were trying to speak to kids on the street who are out there doing drugs and not going to school to say, hey, we can make it not doing that stuff. And you can, too. I found something really cool on the Internet in regards to it's tricky. Okay, so there was a guy that he posted this on Instagram, just a guy driving down the road, top down, turn it up, had his (laughs) windows down and was thumping. It's tricky. Who pulls up next to him? Joseph Simmons, run. Oh, yes. (laughs) When he pulls up next to him, rolls down his window, leans in. The guy's like, oh, my gosh, let's run right next to me. (laughs) And he is rocking the rhymes right out of his window. The guy's like, oh, I can't even believe it. (laughs) There he goes, drives off. That's it. And the guy posted it. It was awesome. Man, that's a lot better than my elbow story. (laughs) Okay, that's it. That's all I got on on It's Tricky. Although I will say that video introduced me to Penn & Teller as well. That was probably the first time I saw him too. Okay, song number three, My Adidas. My Adidas walked through closet doors and rolled all over Coliseum floors. I slept on stage at Live Aid. All the people gave and the poor got paid. This was the first single release from this album. Strong, coming strong. May 29th of 1986. This is a great song. Fantastic song. It's probably my second favorite on the whole album. My roommate in college, when we would be getting ready to go play football or basketball or whatever, I'd be like, let me grab my shoes real quick. That's all he needed. I'd say, I need to grab my shoes. My Adidas. (laughs) (laughs) Scott Foster, shout out to Scott Foster. Interestingly, this song led to the first non-sport entity to sell sneakers. Yes. But when they recorded this song and when this album was released, they had no endorsement deal in place. They just did it because they loved Adidas. I read that uh, in Hollis, there was this local medic 
named Dr. Diaz. Dr. Diaz was this guy around town who distributed a small pamphlet that talked about how felon sneakers, Lee jeans, the certain hats and gold chains, and brand names of Puma and Adidas as troublesome. Like, if you see anybody wearing Puma or Adidas or gold chains or sneakers with no shoelaces, these are troublemakers. These are people you want to watch out for. uh, Racial profiling. Profiling. There you go. And so they got mad about that. They found it insulting. And they're like, hey, we wear Adidas and we're not bad guys. And so they were intent on writing a song about Adidas and being good guys. So let me tell you about a man named Liar Cohen. We we didn't talk about him last episode, but he had started out um, running a club in California. And one time Run DNC had come out there and performed some shows with them. And at one point he decided he was going to work for Rush Management. He basically cold calls. He walks up to the front door in New York and um, tells Rush that he wants to work for him. Now, the Russian known him from booking shows at his club, but he's like, look, you know, we're still a shoestring operation. And uh, the, w- the way this works is, is, you know, you get paid a percentage based on whatever new business you, you bring to the company. You know, that, that, that's the only way I can pay. He said, well, OK, uh, who's handling your merchandise? And Russ is like, uh, my what? He goes, yeah. who, who's booking your shows? Who, who's managing your, your packaging, your tours? He's like, uh, my packet, pack, what? And Liar said. I'll start on Monday in 1986 when he first got this job and he was looking to, to generate the money. One thing they did is they, they pulled out of these annual fresh fest concert tours and he packaged together the raising hell tour. And so all the non rush elements of fresh fest dropped away. So there are no more fat boys, no more break dancers. And it was just rush artists. So that's how the raising hell tour came to be just BC boys, Houdini, LO cool J and run DMC. And that was it. And so it was, so Liar Cohen was the guy who put that on and it was in the middle of the Raising Hell tour that Liar orchestrated uh, a fantastic stunt related to this song, My Adidas. What Liar and Russell did is they conspired to bring over Adidas executives from Germany and had them attend a sellout Run DMC concert at Madison Square Garden. Now, Joseph Simmons also was in on it. And when they got ready to sing this song, he took off his Adidas shoe, held it up in the air, and he told everybody else to do the same. And there was an ocean of teenagers holding their Adidas shoes in the air, waving them back and forth. The house lights come on, the spotlights are sweeping across them. And those Adidas executives, their jaws are on the floor. They realize in that instant what is happening and how powerful Run DMC is to this market. And just like that, they signed run DMC to an Adidas endorsement deal, making history as the first non-athlete to sign a sneaker deal. And this was the beginning of uh, the corporate world of understanding the power of the hip hop market. It's fantastic, man. It is fantastic. They were trendsetters in so many ways. It's it's unbelievable. Okay. So since you brought the company up and since you mentioned them earlier, I'm going to say this. So Adidas, the shoe brand was started by a guy named Adolf Dassler, right? He Adi Das. Adi Das, exactly, right. He had a brother whose name was Rudolf Dassler. And at one point they were in business together, working together, but they realized they didn't like working together. They were they just, you know, their brotherly hate just kind of boil it reached a boiling point. Okay. And so Rudolph was like, you know what? I'm going to go across the river. I'm going to start my own company and we'll just see how it goes. And so 
Adolf makes Adidas, Adidas, and Rudolph starts another shoe company that you might have heard of called Puma. Wow. And then they both end up shoe on the feet of troublemakers out there that you need to watch out for. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what, what's cool about this, about the song, though, is that they're not necessarily bragging about the shoe itself. They're bragging about themselves and about all the things they've accomplished while wearing the shoes. Russell Simmons had this idea that he wanted them to write a song about their Adidas. And he apparently came up with this idea while smoking angel dust. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Daryl McDaniel said he went to see him and he's like, oh, you got to come up with a song that starts my Adidas standing on two fifth street. And he was really, <laughs> and he was really high because he said it about 50 times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they actually mention their live aid performance in yes. the lyrics of this song. We talked about that live aid performance in last week's episode. Yes. They step on stage at Live Aid, all the people gave and the poor got paid. What I find amazing is that this song, My Adidas, has a very famous fan. Bob Dylan loves this song. Really? <laughs> what? That's awesome. At, yeah. At the time in 1986, he, he said in an interview that he just thought this was a great example of just the, the vitality and just the uh, this, the inroads. I guess they had the voice of the black youth market. That He just saw this was a fantastic expression. That is insane. That's incredible. We have mentioned Bob Dylan so much recently in such like way out there ways. He wrote <laughs> Knocking on Heaven's Door, which we talked about in our Guns N' Roses episode several weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. And then because... Because of knocking on heaven's door, that was in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. We talked about him in our Young Guns versus Tombstone episode, and now we were going to talk about him with Run DMC. <laughs> Insane the man is everywhere. <laughs> All right, are we ready to to finish up on uh, my Adidas? I mean, look at this one, two, three, right out of the box. Peter Piper is tricky. My Adidas. You would think this can't possibly get better. What's track four? Track number four is the song that changed. Music, culture, history, everything as we know it. Okay, so I got to start off by saying that we talked about this song on our Aerosmith episode. And just as a quick review of that, Steven Tyler came up with this beat and Joe Perry came up with the lick that went with it. And they were at the end of a very long recording session and they could not come up with any lyrics. They were struggling and struggling. And finally, the producer was like, just leave, just get out of here, go watch a movie, have some fun. And they go across the street to the movie theater. And what movie is playing, Jason? Young Frankenstein. In which we have Marty Feldman, who has the iconic line, walk this way. No, No, this this way. way. Yes. (laughs) And they thought that that line was hilarious. And that's how this song came into being. And it was a part of their Toys in the Attic album, which is probably their greatest album of the 70s, right? Sure. So fast forward a few years, hip hop has caught on, DJing has become a thing, and all of the DJs take these albums, and because they don't want other guys stealing their tricks, they white out basically everything except the track numbers, and so they have toys in the attic, and everybody who's anybody knows, hey, number four is a great lick and a great beat, 
but they would put that on. They'd play that lick. They'd play that beat. They'd scratch it back. They'd do what they did, but they never got to the lyrics of the song. They would just say, hey, grab Toys in the Attic, play number four. Right. But their plan was to roll that into a loop and then rap over it. Yeah, sample like they would normally do with any other song, like they would did with my Sharona or any of the others, is they're gonna they're gonna use that one little part and they're gonna make their own song out of it. But Rick was the one that said, No, you guys should do the original song. I mean, and and you if you listen to it, it's well, to my ears, almost like a rap. That's Steven Tyler has a very rhythmic way of singing his song. Absolutely. And so they took the album home, they put it on the record, they turned it on, and it got past that initial lick and it got into the lyrics and they were like, no, 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 no way. We're not doing this hillbilly crap. The interesting thing was they couldn't understand, and this is back in the days before the internet where you could Google lyrics. So they had their pen and their paper (laughs) and they're like, backstage lover, always undercover. Talk to my, what is this is hillbilly music. (laughs) They, they were not into it at all. And actually it's Jam Master Jay. Who's the one who's like, guys, this is going to be really good. Jay knew a little bit more about the song, I guess, because maybe he was the guy with the records in the back in the park. But when Ruben first suggested walk this way, Joe and Daryl didn't even recognize it. They're like, what do you mean? Walk this way. Like they didn't recognize it by that name. Yeah. And Jason was the one that said, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this one is Toys in the Attic. Well, they knew it by the album name because yeah. all they knew is that opening drum beat. And it had been a staple in the park for years, just like you said. But they had just never bothered to listen to the rest of the song. And they didn't know it by its proper name. So it was Jason that said, no, no, no. Listen, this could work. Now, this is a case. And I don't know how many. It seems like it's in every episode where you're covering albums. But this was a case of where. The album was basically done. They had all these other tracks finished. It's insane. And Rick Rubin, yeah, I mean, you can finish the story. He was like, we need one more. We're missing something. And this was a late idea and a late addition. And this was the one that kind of galvanized the whole album. And I got to say, when we told the story in our Aerosmith episode, I talked about, you know, Aerosmith was kind of in bad trouble at that point. They were, they were trying to come back, but they were not, they had not at all come back to from what they were in the seventies or what they had would become in the late eighties and nineties done with mirrors in 1985 was a disaster. Yeah. It was a total bomb. And so when they get a call at the, when I, we had our episode, I said, they get a call from Mr. Rick Rubin. Well, that was because I was thinking Rick Rubin of, you know, ultimate fame. But at this point, Rick Rubin is a guy who's done nothing. He was nobody to them. So they're getting a call from a nobody about a rap group who's done a couple of albums saying, hey, we want to cover your song and we want you to be involved with the re-recording of the music. They had to be thinking the same thing. Who are these guys? What are we going to be doing? And I think that even when they met up in the studio, there was a lot of posturing and measuring D's, if you know what I mean, because these are these are some strong personalities in these two groups. <laughs> I've got a great story on this. After Rick Rubin told them to grab their loose leaf notebook and pen and go downstairs and write down the lyrics. And once they heard Steven Tyler start to sing, they were refusing to do it. And so they sat there with their arms crossed like stubborn children. And then the phone would <laughs> ring. The phone would ring and they'd be like, not answering it, <laughs> not answering it. And they knew it was Russell who was calling to yell at them, right? 
So they would they like go into hiding, like for a week, they refused <laughs> to do this. And so Jay calls one day. And so they're like, Hey Jay, what do you want? I know, you know, you're mad at us or whatever. He's like, guys, get down to the studio. Steven Tyler and Joe Perry are coming. And they're like, who, <laughs> who? <laughs> <laughs> and so Jay's like, get down here. You know? <laughs> so when they arrive, they see the guys from Aerosmith and they're like, Oh my gosh, the Rolling Stones are here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a fanboy for Rick Rubin, right? Because I mean, this dude has just been like this like slob living in his dorm room, and he stumbled into this situation where he's producing records. And you know, he was the guy who grew up with Led Zeppelin and ACDC and Aerosmith, and he's like, What if we got Aerosmith? And he got him. And then so he's got his heroes in the studio with him. And he can't believe it. He's he's got the Steve Tyler and the Joe Perry, and they're making a record for him. And so he gets in there, and he's got Joe Perry laying down guitar, and Rick Rubin decides he's not playing well enough. He's no good, and he's got the cojones to go up to Joe Perry and say, "You're not doing it right. You got to try it again. Here, try it this way." And Whoa. coaches him on how to play his own lick. Wow. <laughs> no, play it this way. <laughs> he also, I understand, uh, Joe Perry plays bass on this track. But when they got ready to do that, he, well, he hadn't brought a bass guitar. They, they didn't have a bass laying around. And so there were these kids hanging around the studio the day they were recording all this. And one of the kids was like, hold on, I'll go get my bass. And, and, he, and he runs out, right? And eventually he comes back and says, here, you can play, you can play this. And that kid was Adam Yawk. It was the oh. BC boys hanging oh out. Oh my gosh. I, I didn't know the story, but I knew that that was where you were going with the kids hanging out. That is fantastic. Yeah. So fast forward a few months and they're at the, on stage playing together in Miami and Adam Yawk's drunk out of his mind, trying to play bass with Jason Joe, Perry, Joe, Jason, Joe Perry around backwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned that, that Joe Perry was not playing up to par. I heard an interview with Rick Rubin and he was like, Ron and DMC, they were not hitting the lyrics like he really wanted them to. He's like, they were lazy. They were goofing off. They weren't into it. He's like, get your butts in gear and lay down these tracks like you can, you know? And so everybody was kind of feeling it out and took a while to warm up to it. And Daryl McDaniels, they're like, when did you know that this was going to change people's lives? He's like, I didn't know it was going to do anything until it took off. Right. And that was the story that you were alluding to earlier. Whenever they had been touring, they get back. He starts listening to the radio and there's a DJ that comes on and he says, this is the hottest rap song of the summer, guys. Everybody get ready. This is about to blow the summer away. It's so strong. And he knew what the song was going to be. He knew it had to be my Adidas or Peter Piper. And the song started playing and it was that walk this way lyric. And he was like, what? <laughs> yeah. So this album, the the artists themselves, they were more involved in the production of the tracks and the songs than, than the other albums. And Ruben was a little bit more hands off with this than he was with License to Ill. But walk this way is all Rick Ruben. And I mean, we, you know, we talked about how he had to coach up Joe Perry, had to coach up running D. I mean, he demanded the best from all of these guys, and he put this record together, and it sounds amazing. I mean, putting aside the fact that I'm, I'm going to pick rap every day, 
I think this version of the song sounds great. It's just right there in your face, popping out of the speakers. I think it's, the production on it is better than the original song. It just got that energy to it. It's fantastic. There, there are a few cover songs that are so that are as on point with the original as this one is that you might say they may have outdone themselves on this one. And obviously, if you don't have Steven Tyler in there singing his parts to this song, it's not the same song. It doesn't do the same. Right. If you don't have Joe Perry in there doing the lick, even if he took some coaching, it's not the same song. But Run DMC, when, once they got their butts in gear, they were on point on their interpretation of these lyrics. And then we got to talk about the video. Let's talk about the video. Yeah. Okay. So the video is Aerosmith practicing. They're in the room right next door to Run DMC and they're practicing. Run DMC guys start the beat and Steven Tyler's banging on the wall with his microphone stand, punches a hole through it, sticks his head in and... And that's when he screams, walk this way. And it's it's a metaphor for tearing down walls. Yeah, it's great. I love it. And I will say this. I thought of you, Dave, because you are a video guy and editing guy. After Steve Tyler gets done singing through the hole, Joe Perry sticks his head in and looks around and the camera pans across and it does this beautiful cross cut into the concert stage. And I was like, oh, that was a really smooth cut right there. It looks like we just went through the wall and now we're in a completely different place. This video was landmark. It's really kind of amazing. And in retrospect, despite the reluctance that the artists had with doing the song, in hindsight, it seems like a no-brainer. It seems perfect. The beat sounds like a rap beat. It had been used in the park for years. The, the lyrics are already delivered in a way that almost sounds like a rap anyway. Right. Run DMC had a history already of using rock and roll on their records. I mean, it just sounds fantastic. And you're bringing in this classic rock band that's going to bring a whole new audience to Run DMC. And this puts them on MTV for the first time. This video was the first time Steve Tyler and Joe Perry had ever appeared on MTV. That's insane. That's crazy. And, and then not only do you have that metaphor of walls being knocked down, but you're using that video and the collaboration here of these two high-profile artists to really send that message of, of that crossover, right? So you're just uniting the races, the black and white folks together can both like this music, can both like this song. And the video really drove that home in a pretty cool way. But not only that, but that's exactly what this song did for rap. This was no longer something obscure and on the fringes. I was like the weird white dude who already knew about like, you know, Boogie Boys and Lottie Dottie and all this stuff my freshman year. But nobody really was on board with how cool rap could be until this song came out. And suddenly it was cool to like run DMC. And, I, and, I, and I'm looking like the, the hip guy in the corner who knew about it all along. So <laughs> it cannot be overstated how massive of an impact this song had on breaking rap out and busting through that wall and, and, and taking it to the mainstream. Even just the simple storyline of the video, you start the video with animosity and by the time you reach the end, it's handshakes and hugs. Yeah, it's great. Beautiful. It's awesome. And in between, yep. you get a great look at their shoeless Adidas. <laughs> yeah. And the um, veins in Steven Tyler's neck. <laughs> this song is everything. I mean, I believe that it was the success of this song that created the environment in the marketplace that allowed the Beastie Boys album to be received so well. And it kind of primed the audience and got the country ready for something like the Beastie Boys. I don't think License to Ill sells as well as it does 
without raising hell first, but but specifically walk this way. You're exactly right. Everything you say is absolutely true. But for a guy like me, what this song gave us was loving an elevator and Janie's got a gun and crying and crazy and living on the edge and every other Aerosmith song because it revitalized their career. Yes. This is a fantastic, the best of crossovers, right? Because it's a win-win for everybody. Aerosmith absolutely needed this just as much as Run DMC did. And both acts come out way ahead after this collaboration. Yep. And I love what Daryl McDaniel says about this song. He's like, at first, we were adamantly against it. We were viciously opposed. But when he talks to high school kids, he's like, listen, always be willing to try something new. It may just change your life. And he's yeah. absolutely right. Changed lives, changed the direction of, of music in the 80s. It's just absolute massive monster. All right. I hate to be done with it, but we've hit four for four at this point. We have had nonstop awesomeness. Classic. Yes. We are about to dive into track number five. Is it live? The microphone master DMC cause one, two, three, four casualties. You'll be raising D down on your knee. Cause I'm popping and drop stopping all MCs. Okay. I love this song. I don't think this was a single from the album, but this is one of my favorite. I love the energy of it. I, it's, it's absolutely, you know, I, I turn this one up every time it comes on. But I got to tell you a story. And so okay. I'm in 12th grade, right? So this is a couple of years after the album has come out. And I'm sitting in English class. And I, and I got to tell you up front, my girlfriend is in the same class and she's just a couple of rows away. Okay. okay we're sitting there and we are studying poetry and the teacher's going over different types of rhyming schemes you know how you have a a b b c c or you might have a a b and and c c b to go with you know it's all just poetry stuff that you're learning in class right and they were like and she was checking you know see if everybody understands what she's talking about says can you think of examples of some rhyming schemes and i'm sitting over there and i just do one of these things like uh, <clears throat> like that that's all i do uh-huh. <laughs> and then everybody looks at me and, and I play it all over. Uh, what? Who? Me? And and so and everybody in the classroom, right? They like they they know they know me. And all of a sudden, they're like they're starting to giggle. They're punching each other and pointing like, "Hey, look, look, look at the and and, just, and everybody starts laughing and like, snickering. Just knowing something's something's coming, right? And uh, and I'm just playing it low key, you know. What the teacher is this like prim and proper, you know, like classically educated, like Victorian, like hair in a bun, Victorian collar. And she turns and she says. David, can you share with the class an example of an internal rhyming scheme? <laughs> I'm like, just served a softball right over the middle of the plate. Right? <laughs> and I'm playing it low key, you know, to, but, but I've got 25 kids in the room, like on the hook and I'm reeling them in. Right. And I'm just like, Oh, you want me to rhyme? <laughs> and, and, and the teacher has no idea what's coming. And she's like, yes. And I go, connect, eject, and collapse. Get down to the sound, because the cut's correct. The money right, don't bite. And I might check. And and all the guys in the class got their hands in there, and they're like, go, Def Dave. Go, Def Dave. But all the girls in the class, they're they're ignoring me, because all their eyes, they're on my girlfriend. right? And she's completely mortified. She's like trying to hide under the desk. She's giving me these looks like, you shut up now, David, shut up. <laughs> and I'm like oblivious, you know, just kind of got quality and skill, but beyond belief, do I still be for real? And <laughs> <laughs> That's great, oh, man. man. It was awesome. And then uh, 
she didn't dump me right away. <laughs> was this <laughs> the same had, girlfriend? No, this was a different girl, not the one that was jocking Mike D to Mike. D. <laughs> <laughs> it was a completely different girl. She got rid of me right after prom was over. So the moral of the story is, uh, is I, I was a high school loser that never made it with the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That's great, man. Hey, I had something similar. I'm just going to throw this in really quick. In my Spanish class, my Spanish teacher is one of those days we're watching a video and she's like, okay, class, we're going to watch a movie, but it's going to be in Spanish and I'm going to stop it every so often. You're going to tell me what's going on if you can do it. Right. And we're like, okay, whatever. So she pops in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but in Spanish. So she keeps (laughs) stopping and she's like, does anyone know what they're saying? And I'm like. And I just, I'm like, well, they're looking for the ark, but they're looking in the wrong place. And the thing's one thing too short. And uh, I amazed my Spanish teacher. She had no clue. Very good, Miguel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's awesome, man. All right. Are we done with, is it live? Yeah. Yeah, we could be done. I love it. To me, it's another hit. It's another, it's another nonstop hits here coming from the top. So the next song on the album is a song called Perfection. Everybody out there ready? It goes a one, two, three, and perfection to be is quite essential. He has to live up to his potential. I work real hard all day and night. I get to it and do it because I want it right. Okay, I've got one thing to say about this, and I'm going to turn you loose, man. Okay. One thing I know about this song is that is Jason Mazel on the drums. Yes, and that's really the the big takeaway. This is the only track on the album that's got live drums, real drumming on it. It's a interesting way that they handle it. It's a slowed down beat. It's it is much slower than the first five songs that we've heard so far, tempo wise. And then they do an interesting thing where I, I think it's Run is doing the falsetto, high pitched yep. against against DMC's regular voice rap, which is yep. interesting because later on DMC went through this whole weird spell where he went ultra low and said he was basically forced to sing in a higher voice that was than his normal voice but anyway it's just it's interesting that they've got that dynamic going on in this one what do you, do you like this song dave i do like it now it is definitely you know a step down in energy from the other songs that have come before it so far and as someone who's not a, like a huge devotee to this album this might be one that goes lower on their list but the reason I like it is because it is so easy to do the parts because it's so slow. You know, this is one that I could get together with a buddy and we could switch off parts and sing along uh-huh. with the record. You know, we could we could pull it off, uh, but I don't ever skip it. I, I, it's, it's a change of pace. It's a nice little thing to have right there at this spot in the sequence. And uh, it, it's lighthearted. You know, it's kind of funny. It's fun. It's a step down from the others we've heard so far. I like the drums. I, I do like the live drums. I think that it gives a little bit more character. You can see Jay's talent as a musician here. Okay. Hit stop on your tape player. Eject. Kick it out. Flip it over. Mm-hmm. Side two. And we start off with a song called Hit It Run. Born a rock around the clock. You can't say I'm not. And in case you forgot, I'm a king. Powerful start to the second side right here. Okay, hold on, hold on. It's so rare that I get the opportunity to do this. This is the titular track. 
Titular. Uh, never grown up from sophomore year. No, I <laughs> this one contains the gigantic MFR in the middle of it. Yeah. That was yeah, a little bit of a shock to me. These two albums we're looking at, License to Ill and Raising Hell, they, you know, you look back at now and with slightly more mature ears, and they're, they're both a little problematic for different reasons. You know, License to Ill is actually completely clean in its language. It's just that some of the subject matter you know, right. it's a little rough. And uh, in this case, on this album, the subject matter is not too bad, but there are three tracks that have uh, have explicit language in it. And this was, this was the worst one, unfortunately, because it, it does detract from what is a fantastic song. It's an awesome high energy jam. Along with dropping that MF or like a scud missile right there, I had seen some interviews with Run on YouTube and I was just watching those. And he became later in life known as Reverend Run. Yeah. He went to church all the time. As he was telling his story, he... He decided one day to go to church. I and mean, it was one of those deals that, you know, as with most grown men who give in and go to church for the first time, they want to sit in the back row. They don't want anybody to talk to them. They just want to kind of observe. So he's sitting there one day and he saw what clearly was a grandmother who was dragging her grandson to church. And he didn't want to be there, but she was making him, right? And he was into rap music. And as they walked in, he locked eyes with Run. He sits down with his grandmother and he keeps looking back at Run. Like, that can't be who I think it is. And he keeps looking at him. And he and he elbows his grandmother and he's like, that's that's like a rap superstar behind us. And she's like, that ain't no rap superstar. You're in church. Turn around and listen. <laughs> right? But he keeps glancing back, keeps glancing back. And, he's, and he becomes more and more sure that that's Run from Run DMC. And he said... Like on the 10th time, Run winked at him. And that's when the guy's like, that's Run from Run DMC. And I just thought that story was hilarious. Awesome. <laughs> and he never skipped church again. <laughs> that's right. The so, moral of the story is always go to church because you never know who you're going to see there. So this song features Daryl, almost exclusively Daryl doing all the rapping. And that is because Joe is actually beatboxing on this record. <laughs> And beatboxing was something that Run DMC had never done and was kind of the domain of Dougie Fresh and the Fat Boys. Those were the two most prominent beatboxers. And so for Run DMC to come out with beatboxing was kind of a bold move. And it's like if they didn't nail it, they were going to look like they were just being copycats. But I think this song is absolutely fantastic. I attended the Raising Hell show in May of 1986 in Columbus, Georgia. And this was before Walk This Way had been released as a single. Okay. So I'm about the, the, I'm about the only white kid in the whole crowd, right? If you remember the old school televisions, when you turn it off and it would, it would go black except for that one little white dot. In the middle. Okay. <laughs> I would tell people I was the white dot on the TV set. You were but I did know King of Rock, right? King of Rock was the album that got me hooked on all this. And King of Rock, the song was my favorite at the time. And I hadn't heard the Raising Hell album yet when I went to this show. And they start off with, I'm the king of rock. And I was like, oh, they just took King of Rock and they just flipped it. And there's a whole new song. And it completely blew me away. I mean, yeah. I was just enraptured. So from that very first live performance, I've always absolutely loved this song. All right. Moving on to the eighth track on the album. Yes. This song is called... Raising Hell. 
down, turn it up. <laughs> this song is a guitar rock thumper, man. Turn it up. This is my favorite song in this album. I can't help but listen to it and listen to it loud and scream the lyrics along every time. <laughs> who, who does the guitar on this, man? That's you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I wanted it to be Eddie Martinez, but as I was researching for it, I could never find the answer. So I, re I really don't know the answer. Man, it's great. It's great. I love the song too. Dissing all devils, causing havoc in hell at a very high level, based on trouble shall yell. I mean, it's everything like a beast or at least. There's no stopping because the rocket cannot cease. Break. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you just. Kings from mm. Queens. Kings from Queens. From Queens come Kings. <laughs> it's the rock and roll version of rap, right? They're right. screaming their lyrics. Like, not every rapper yells their lyrics the way Run DMC does. I mean, these guys are taking a rock mentality and a rock approach to their rap, even when they're not using like rock arrangements. This is the song. If I can only pick one song off the album, it's going to be this one. I got to say, I was not familiar with this song before we started doing the research and listening to this album. This song is the the standout for me at this point. I love the fact that he keeps talking about how awesome D is because I identify with that. And so, <laughs> you know, from the mountain valley to the deep blue sea, the word is heard is told by D. I love that. I love it all. It's such a good song. We get these golden nuggets every once in a while as we're going through these albums of like, hey, I didn't really even hear this one before. And this is this is definitely that song for me on this album. Wow. Okay. So this is where I want to drop in my Sarah McLaughlin story. Okay. We take this heavy, hard hitting rocker and then flash forward 11 years to 1997. Run DMC has fallen from grace. Daryl McDaniels is a full blown alcoholic who is suicidal, emotionally broken. Every day he wakes up and finds a reason not to commit suicide. He returns from a Japanese tour. Dave, do you know the story? I don't. Okay. So on his way back from the Japanese tour, he's supposed to fly in based on where he lives. He's supposed to fly into LaGuardia airport in New York city. And instead he goes to JFK. So he's mega pissed about that. So he gets in the taxi and the taxi says, taxi guy says, where are we going, sir? And he says, New Jersey. And the guy, same thing happens. He looks over his shoulder, kind of glances at him. And he keeps turning every stoplight. He keeps glancing at him. And finally, like at the third stoplight, he's like, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but you're Run DMC and I love Run DMC and I could get fired and I, I just really would love an autograph and I'm really, really sorry. And, <laughs> and Daryl's like, look, man, it's it's cool. Don't worry about it. I'll even take a picture with you. It'll be fine. And so the guy's like, oh, this is so amazing. Thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. So as they're traveling, the guy says, would you mind if I turn on the radio? And Daryl's like, yeah, that's fine, whatever. And so because he knows he's a rapper, he turns on the local hardcore rap station in New York City. And Daryl's like, look, man, anything but this crap. I can't take it. None of this stuff. So the guy's like, oh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. So he turns it to the easy listening station. Mm. And the song that is playing when he turns it to the easy listening station is a song called Angel by Sarah McLaughlin. Makes me think of a dog commercial. They play it over that <laughs> please adopt a, so a dog commercial. Yes. True. So mm. sad. A little hard hitting. But it's soft and it's so tender and it's beautiful but it's just this light piano easy listening song and daryl sitting there and he's like like breaks down because of the beauty of this song and he starts to like emotionally break and he's like if there is this kind of beauty left in the world then i can still go on living and he's like i can't express this enough to you sarah mclaughlin's angel saved my life okay 
<laughs> in the back of a cab. In the back of a cab. And if you grew up in the 90s, you were very familiar with this song. They played it all the time. Part of the soundtrack for City of Angels. Yes. I owned it and listened to it all the time. I thought it was truly beautiful. As it's well. beautiful. In the arms of the angel, fly away from here. So he said he went into a shell and all he did at his house was read comic books and listen to Sarah McLachlan CDs, right? They would pick him up to go do a play a show. Some. Jay and Ron would show up and say, let's go get in the car. And he's like, you'd have to play my Sarah McLachlan CD. <laughs> and they're like, man, get that crap out of here. We're not listening to that. He's, and he said he would take his bags, go back in the house and shut the door. He was, I'm not coming unless you play my Sarah McLachlan CD. Go save my life, man. So finally, his manager, who was his best friend at the time, his name is Eric, talks him into going this Clive Davis after Grammy's party. And it's a big deal. But he's all he wants to do is sit around and listen to a Sarah McLaughlin CD. And so they know he's suicidal. They know he's troubled. He's an alcoholic. So they drag him to this Grammy show and he's sitting there and he, it's the same deal. He sits in a chair right by the door and all he wants to do is go home. How right? long do I have to wait? How long do I have to wait? So he says, you got one hour. I'm going to be here one hour. And he said, the first dude who walks in the door is Busta Rhymes. <laughs> and Busta Rhymes is like, this dude is hip hop personified. And he brings all this attention to him. And he's just like, please just go away. I just want to go home and listen to my Sarah McLaughlin CD. <laughs> so he says, so then he goes away. The second dude who walks in is Stevie One. And he said, Stevie Wonder didn't see him. Obviously. That's a joke, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Stevie's, long, <laughs> but Stevie's people kind of push him over towards him, and he's so bitter and so angry, he's like, I hope freaking Stevie Wonder falls on his face as he's walking <laughs> over here. But when Stevie gets over there, he talks to him briefly. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Go away. But he said the third person that walked in the door is Sarah McLaughlin. Uh. And he's freaking out. He's like sweating. And he's like a fanboy. He's like, oh, my gosh, I've got to go talk to her and tell her what she's done for me in my life. So he gets up, gathers his courage, walks over to her and says, excuse me, Miss McLaughlin. I just want to tell you that your song Angel is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And it changed me and it saved my life. Mm -hmm. And she goes, hey, you're you're DMC from Run DMC. He's like, yes. And she's <laughs> like. It's trick to rock and run to rock and run. <laughs> Walk this way. And he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> so anyway, he got through that massive depression with the help of Sarah McLaughlin. And eventually he kicked the alcohol habit as well. That's a fantastic story. We done with that one? Yeah, all time. I want to say this real quick. Run DMC's final album came out in 2001. It was called Crown Royal. And this was at a time when Daryl had lost his voice. He actually could not perform they called it a run dmc album and run carried the album with a new guest star in every track and they had a song called school of old which was a collaboration between run and kid rock and it's it's one of the best songs on that album and they reused the final verse from the song raising hell they reused it in school of old on the, on their 2001 album and it's that's a song that's worth checking out it's pretty cool awesome awesome i found out who the guitar player is in the song you guys ready yeah okay yeah Rick Rubin. <laughs> Rick Rubin is the one playing the guitar on this song. I should have known. It's awesome. All right. So that brings us to song number nine on the album. This was the third single released October 21st, 1986. This song is called You Be Illin'. Yo, Jay. Oh. 
Well, this song was a big hit among my friends. It's obviously, it's a comedy song, right? It's almost like in the tune of, uh, I mean, in the vein of like Charlie Brown. If you remember those old kind of songs like that, they were kind of joke uh, records. We got a big kick out of this and we always enjoyed playing it. Personally, for me, uh, it's, it's it's not my favorite on the album just because I, I'm usually not in the mood for comedy when I'm listening to Run DMC, but it, it is it is a lot of fun. It's a, it's a fun song. It's a little bit goofy. This was a fun song to break to, I can tell you that. <laughs> There's a nice moment in the song where he goes, and it was deaf. And I, I was able to take that song deaf and use it myself, you know, as for Deaf Dave. I could sample it. <laughs> You explained to me last week, which I hadn't always been super crystal clear on what it meant to be ill or illin. Um, <laughs> and so ill is the opposite of chill, right? It's it, if you're acting yeah. like a, a fool or you're acting crazy, or you're acting dumb, you be yes. illin. You're whack. That's right. Whack, by the way, has made it back into the vernacular. I've got kids who are using whack now. I imagine <laughs> illin will be next. <laughs> um, it never left my vernacular, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> Peaked at number 29 on the Hot 100. All right. So next song on the album is called Dumb Girl. Interesting to find out how many times they actually say the word dumb at the beginning. (laughs) This song is all about that bass. If you wanted to show off your car's system, Dumb Girl was a track you could go to in 1986, turn up those subwoofers, and rattle windows all around the block. <laughs> it's one of those songs that would be obnoxious in traffic, and you couldn't even hear anything else except that bass just shaking the ground. So here's the thing I read about this. This this was a, something I found really interesting. So it is generally not like them to be insulting to women, and right. to write a song about, you know, Dumb Girl, it's just a little bit, I mean... Not that big of a deal, but it's, it's you know, uncharacteristic for them. So the rumor is that LL Cool J wrote this song when he was 17 years old. That was the rumor on the street. He's not listed among the songwriters, I can tell you that. That's That was the rumor I found on the internet. <laughs> because the internet is always right. Right. <laughs> uh, I like this song. I just think it's a lot of fun. They're, they're switching back and forth uh, real well in this. And... Um, the dumb diddy dumb diddy diddy dumb dumb all that stuff's a lot of fun and of course the bass just hitting like crazy i listen to it every time i'll never skip it i love it <laughs> so who's jc the first what? line of the song is i'd seen you jack and jc because they got him most hazed oh <laughs> Coleman right here the okay. song was written about me and my girlfriend what there are you talking about right now <laughs> and it actually this is our line jc ain't d just be his fan <laughs> <laughs> all right the next song on the album is a song called Son of Byford. Hey, yo, Jay, yo, Jay, check this out. I was born son of Byford, brother of Al. So this song is only about 27 seconds long. It's a reprise of the last verse of Hit It Run. And it just seems like a silly little interlude. It barely even counts as a song. But while researching for this podcast, I came across a story about Daryl McDaniels. And wow, it just, it makes this song, of all things, it makes this song a lot more poignant than you ever would guess. Yeah. The interesting thing, during Daryl's depression, he thought, well, to help me get out of this depression, I'm going to write a book. Because I want people to understand who Daryl is. They know who DMC is. I want them to know who Daryl is. 
And so he knew that he had been born May 31st, 1964, but he didn't really know the details. So he called his mother and he says, Hey mom, I know I was born May 31st, 1964, but I've got a few questions for you. How much did I weigh? What time of day was it? And what hospital was I born in? She answers all three of those. He says, okay, okay, okay. Thanks mom. Love you. Talk to you later. Boom. Hangs up with her. One hour later, she calls him back with his father on the line, and he thinks, well, this is going to be something nostalgic or trivial or something like that. So they're going to tell him another detail that they remembered about the day he was born. So he's like, hey, guys, what's going on? And she's like, oh, hey, Daryl, I just want to let you know you were a month old when we brought you home. You were adopted. We love you. Bye. Click. So he said, on top of being suicidal, emotionally broken, alcoholic, he finds out at age 35 mm. that he was adopted. Wow. It shook his world. He had no idea. He had grown up in such a loving home. And remember, we talked last week about how his mother was so overprotective. It kind of recast all that in a different light now. She didn't want him to go to the city. She didn't want him to leave the house. She didn't want him to have friends over when she wasn't home. She was very protective of her son and they absolutely loved him very much. And he had a great upbringing, you know, and people would tease him about how he didn't look anything like his parents. Right. But, but any fleeting thought that he had like that just didn't last long and was dismissed because of how much love he felt from his mom and dad and how close he was to his parents. But hip hop and it's particularly so much of his type of rap is, is about I am Daryl. I am Daryl Mack. I am the devastating mic controller. I am the son of Byford and all these things. And then he's 35 years old and he, he finds out he's not even sure who he is at all. He did nothing that he thought he knew. Could, he, can he remain certain about at this point? So kind of the, the end of the story is he proceeds to Use a private investigator to find his birth mom. And he really wanted to have a copy of his pre-adoption birth certificate. That piece of paper was really important to him because on it, it showed who he actually was. And so he talked to the lady at the Department of Health and she had it in her hand, but couldn't give it to him. And so he's like, that's that's crazy. Why, why can you not give that to me? And so he actually has now helped pass laws that allow adoptees to get a copy of their pre-adoption birth certificate. That's awesome. Well, the one thing that was really healing for him and really helped him, and he said it served as an anchor, was he discovered that his birth name actually was Daryl. His real mother gave him Daryl at his birth. And that really helped him like have something to hold on to. And all his bragging he did on record about his name being Daryl, and that really, that really saw him through the storm, really the worst part of all this. On a lighter note, you know, the beginning of the song when he's son, son of, of Byford, brother of Al. Al, he got that from a Thor comic. We talked about how Daryl McDaniels is a big, big comic book fan. And he got it from Thor, where Thor was son of Odin, brother of Loki. So just to touch on something that's put him where he was at that point, you know, we talked last episode about the fact that before they really did their first show, the only rapping that he had done had been up in their lab, you know, in the attic when he was drunk. Well, he realized because he was normally a very introverted guy, he realized that if I start drinking a little bit, it'll loosen me up and I can perform on stage. Well, that was fine because that meant he would just drink before they went on stage and everything would be fine. But then they hit it big and they hit it really big. And he had to be not Daryl, but DMC, not just on stage, but all the time because they were constantly in the public eye. 
And so he started drinking more and more so he could maintain that persona. And eventually he was, he was going through a case of forties a day. Like it was just in his hand all day long was a 40 and like case of forties a day. And I mean, it was just that he didn't eat. He didn't do anything. He didn't drink anything else. It was just drinking beer all day long. And eventually he had the, he had an episode much like we talked about Duff McKagan having where he woke up and like, he was feeling the most intense pain of his entire life. And they took him to the hospital and the doctor said, you know, you drink very much. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to give you a choice. Okay. You can keep drinking and die, or you can stop now, never drink again, and you will be able to live. But those are your only two chops. Wow. And then something amazing happened. Daryl McDaniels produced a song and emerged as an artist in a way that you perhaps never would have expected. He called his friend Sarah McLaughlin, <laughs> and they produced a song about this, all right, about this journey of discovering that you're adopted. It's called Just Like Me. And Sarah McLaughlin appears on the record with him. She chose to collaborate with him because she also is adopted. She was just a young girl in our youth, and her parents tried real hard to hide the truth. Is there a chance for the baby to live? That is a chance that you gotta give. That is a chance that you gotta give. I mean, I can't get through the video in one sitting. I have to stop and gather myself. It's really, it's it's a powerful song because you know how personal and how true of a story it is. It's a powerful song and I have to think that it would, it would have to be impactful and, and healing to anybody who's ever been in a similar situation that he's been in. It's fantastic. You know, one of the things he talks about Somebody was asking him, why is it so important for you to have that birth certificate, that pre-adoption birth certificate? And he said, well, you never start a book on chapter two. Right. He's also a producer of his own line of comic books. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, one of the things I love about him, every time I see him, he's wearing a different shirt. I've seen him wear an ACDC black and black shirt. I've seen him wear Aerosmith shirts, of course. He wore a Nirvana shirt. All these different bands that you wouldn't necessarily think or associate with Run DMC. Yep. He's a big classic rock guy now. Sure is. That's so cool. That's so cool. All right. Last track on the album is a song called Proud to be Black. You know I'm proud to be black, y'all. And that's a fact, y'all. Well, like I said before, I saw Run DMC in concert three times. So I'm in 86, the Raising Hell tour, when I was not familiar with the album. And I did see them in 2001. But in 1988, on the Run's House tour, they came out. This is the where this is the show where they recorded the Mary Mary video. Right. And of course, at this point, I'm very familiar with the Raising Hell album. And I'm down on the floor and I'm squeezed in and I'm close to the stage. It was at this point in my life where I learned that there are some songs that white dudes don't sing at the top of their lungs. <laughs> 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 
I'm, not, I'm, I'm just into it, right? I'm feeling the music, and I'm sitting there going, I'm proud to be black, y'all. And I start getting looks, and message received. I got real quiet. And with the mouth shut for the rest of the jam. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. So this this song makes references to Jesse Owens, to Martin Luther King, to Harriet Tubman, and to Malcolm X, George Washington Carver. And I just got to say this. So in doing the research that we did and looking at the history of rap, I came across something I didn't know before. So we talked about the influences on hip hop and some of the rhymes and such, and some of the I listened to some of the earlier rap songs and I found out that one of them was strongly influenced by a speech that Malcolm X gave, where he was talking about the difference between the slaves that lived in the house and the slaves that worked the field. And he was talking about how the slaves that worked in the house were always cowing to the master. And if anything were going wrong, like that the house was on fire, they would realize they're going to lose their home. And so they'd run and tell the master Whereas the slaves in the field couldn't have cared less if the house was on fire, which is where you get the song lyrics, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let that burn. I never knew that. There you go. Wow. There's a tidbit for you. Wow. There you go. A couple of things about this. It's interesting to look at the writer credits for this song because one of the writers is Dr. Dre. No, not that one. so so dr dre from yo mtv raps fame who spent a spent a stint as the dj for beastie boys that's right helped co-write proud to be black now guess who the other credited writer is on this song a guy named daniel simmons senior runs dad wow write this song okay runs dad uh daniel senior was someone who, at the beginning of our story last week, was an administrator of the public school system. He Uh would go on to become a professor in Black history. In 1963, when they were still living in Jamaica, Queens, he started getting involved in activism for the civil rights movement. Um, He participated in a protest that was going on there locally in Jamaica, Queens. And then that that really kind of woke him up and got him kind of politically active in the civil rights movement. As a matter of fact, he drove down, I think it was August 1963, and he marched with Dr. King in the Freedom March and was there in the crowd on the day of the I Have a Dream speech. Oh, wow. So, wow. And he helped write Proud to be Black. That's amazing. It's fantastic. That's fantastic. It's a great story, man. Best way to end our discussion of track by track on this album. Now we come to the moment of decision. Okay, so here we are. We've gone through the history of Beastie Boys. We've gone through Licensed to Ill, track by track. We've gone through the history of hip hop itself and Run DMC and Raising Hell, track by track. And so, Jason, you're on. Yeah! So as a person who was uh, didn't own either one of these albums, I found that as I went through them, I liked a lot of the songs on there that I didn't know or wasn't familiar with before we started this, okay? As I go through the track list, from License to Ill, you've got some major, major songs from my youth. You've got Fight for Your Right. You've got No Sleep Till Brooklyn. You've got Paul Revere. We loved Brass Monkey and Girls. And Rhyming and Stealing was great. Those songs are awesome. They're also rock-based. A lot of Led Zeppelin in there. Then you go back to the Raisin' Hell album. You've got Peter Piper, awesome. You've got, of course, Walk This Way is mind-blowing. It's Tricky was on MTV all the time. 
UB Illin, Raising Hell is awesome. But for me, I have to go with Beastie Boys on the power behind Fight for Your Right and No Sleep Till Brooklyn. I'm going Licensed to Ill as the better of these two albums. The Graves. One, two, three, five. Okay, so coming into this, I thought I would probably say the, th- the same thing. I thought I would probably say License to Ill. There are so many strong songs, and they borrow from some of my favorite songs with a lot of Led Zeppelin, When the Levee Breaks, and Oceans, and all of these other songs, and I love it. If I'm walking out the door and I want to grab an album, this is easily one I could grab and throw in the CD player and enjoy the long trip to wherever it is that I'm going. But for this particular matchup, I'm falling back on nostalgia. As the young kid who took a paint pen and wrote Dr. Fresh in bubble letters on his boom box because he wanted to be a b-boy, he wanted to dance to whatever awesome rap was out there at the time. Run DMC was a part of my childhood, whereas Beastie Boys was something that I didn't grow a taste for until later. And so because I love it, because it brings me back to those days of my youth, I got to pick Raisin Hell. All right, Dave, you're the tiebreaker. Well, first of all, you have to understand that the good news is you don't really have to choose, right? You still get to listen to both (laughs) albums. These are both Hall of Fame albums for me. They're absolutely still at the top of my list. Um, It is hard for me to think of these as nostalgia trips because the truth is neither one of these albums have ever left my rotation. They they remain uh, a part of my listening habits and they have through all these years. Another thing about these two albums is that this largely validated my existence in high school, right? Because I had been the weird fringe guy that was listening to all this weird rap before it had broken out and go mainstream. And it was all I wanted to listen to. And nobody knew these acts or these songs. And I got some barbs thrown my way occasionally. But it was when these songs hit and it broke through and now you had white kids as well as black kids listening to rap. Then suddenly my status got elevated. I I felt not only more accepted, but, you know, I'm also the guy they're turning to with questions and everything. So I I felt the one time in my life where I felt like the hipster that was ahead of the crowd. And they go hand in hand. Right, they came out the same year, but they're by the same producer. The acts knew each other. They toured together. It's really hard to separate these two albums for me. What I'm saying is with both albums, I never skip a track. And that's something that you can rarely say about any album. And they're both true for this one. So where do I draw the line? What hair do I split and what side do I come down on? Well, it comes down to your mood, really, right? Because there are different attitudes that are the prevailing attitude in each album. I think the Beastie Boys one is more fun, you know, and it's more lighthearted and it's not not necessarily obvious punchlines. Maybe sometimes there are, but but you come away smiling. And then with Run DMC, you've got more of a edgier rock attitude. Even though there's some rock and roll music on License to Ill, the overall attitude is a is a tougher one on Raising Hell. So it's, it's, it may come down to just the mood you're in that day. But what I do is I come down to this. Even though the Beastie Boys are, are authentic and they're legit, they come from the club scene in New York, but they, cl- they come from the punk lineage, right? And whereas Run DMC with the tie to Russell Simmons, they are right there, a part of that main hip hop lineage that I ran down starting with Cool Herc last week and coming all the way through. And so because of that, because of all the weight of hip hop and everything I find cool about that, 
and and their connection to Russell and all the early days in the early 80s. I come down on Run DMC. They're the greatest rap act ever. This is their greatest album. There's no way anybody can knock them from the perch. The final judgment, I'm dropping the mic. It is Raising Hell. Yes. Awesome. Love it. Coming love it. strong right there. I love it. Well, guys, tell us what you think. You've tuned in for these episodes. You've got to love these albums. Uh, they have to be a part of your life if you were alive in the 80s. But hit us up on Twitter and on Facebook at Shirley Podcast. If you want to send us an email like Mr. Def Dave did for us to go, hey, if you guys ever cover Run DMC and Beastie Boys, I want to be a part of it. Man, by all means, hit us up, Podcast at gmail.com. Dave, thank you so much for, for giving us your time and, and expertise on these two oh, amazing no albums. Idea. You have no idea how much fun I've had. I know this is kind of a, this is probably a unique thing. You haven't had anybody on like this for this much, four weeks in a row like this. It was what a privilege, what an honor. I absolutely love your show. I love your format. I've listened to every single one of them, except for the Bill and Ted ones, because I haven't seen Face the Music yet. But other than that, <laughs> I've, I've seen your whole show and I'm looking forward to, to going back to being a listener and tuning in to what you have for us next time. And just uh, best of luck to you guys going forward. And anytime I can help you all out, you know, I, call me up. I'm ready to help. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, thanks so much. We can't wait. It's I'm a little emotional here at the end of this adventure that we've had, but we will find a way to do it again. Yeah, we'll see you down the road, Dave. Thank you so much. Awesome. Sounds good, man. Thanks a lot. And for everybody else out there, when you come back next week, we're going to be diving into Christmas movies, okay? These are classic Christmas movies. The Christmas movies of little boys. We are going to compare a Christmas story to Home Alone. You'll shoot your eye out. (laughs) (laughs) So come back and join us for those. We can't wait to get into those. Dave, thanks again. And we will see everybody next week. Okay, Dave. For the Shirley Showcase this week, I've got my dear friends, Mark and Melissa Mingle, and they are going to tell us what they think about Purple Rain, the movie, versus Footloose, the movie. All right. This is one of our episodes on the 1984 summer special. Uh, So let's hear what Melissa and Mark have to say. Hi, this is Mark Mingle. This is Melissa Mingle, and we are going to quickly give you our feedback on Footloose, the film, and Purple Rain from 1984. Mark, how old were you in the summer of 1984? I turned 12 at the end of the summer of 84. And so I specifically do remember going to the theater with my sister and some friends to see Footloose. And at the time, loved it. I mean, you know, I was just about to become a teenager and all these teenagers singing and dancing and all the stuff they were wanting to do seemed very cool and all the songs seemed very cool to me so i really loved footloose enjoyed it of course all the music was getting popular on the radio with kenny loggins and other artists so so yeah it was totally cool for me at the time i don't know that it holds up terribly well over the years if you go back and watch it now purple rain i believe was rated r and i did not uh, go to raid at our movies when I was 12. Good for you. So it, uh, I didn't see that till later. It, it was maybe 86, 87, probably before I saw that. And okay. so, uh, and I don't know, I'll be honest, I don't remember if I saw it all in one sitting, if I sat through the whole thing on HBO or something, but I, or on video, so I saw some of it. I love the music from, from Purple Rain. I mean, there's tons and tons of great hits from that album. 
but I know the album better than I know the movie. Okay, so I was 14 that summer, and I loved both soundtracks, which we are not supposed to talk about. We're supposed to just talk about the films. I now love many of the actors that were in Footloose. Kevin Bacon, Sarah Jessica Parker, the pastor and his wife were John Lithgow, and um, Diane Weist, yes. I had a little, see, the trophy husband remembers things better than me. Great cast, but even as a 14-year-old, there were things that I thought dialogue-wise and things about the film that seemed a little mainstream, and I'm going to say it. I'm going to say the word pedestrian, just trying to appeal to the masses. Um, also, Kevin Bacon being like 28 and playing a teenager in high school was kind of a stretch, but still. Well, that's Greece and everything else, but... Purple Rain, even we probably need to have a double feature and rewatch these, but I felt like that was more of a true film, not just a movie appealing to the masses. I felt like there was more truth to the characters. Even as a kid, I, I felt like it was more of a film, not just a Hollywood movie. And both soundtracks are great, but I think there was more depth to Purple Rain, but I think we might need to rewatch both of them because we are much older now. But I'm definitely putting my vote for Purple Rain as I best. Would, I would probably vote for Footloose because I could identify in the film with some of growing up in, you know, kind of a pretty, you know, conservative Baptist church as a kid. Like you start to think about things like hey, why can we dance or not dance? And, you know, my church wasn't really like the church in Footloose at all, but seeing kids wanting to kind of grow up and express themselves and not just be, you know, controlled by others. I mean, without being just overtly rebellious, it seemed like a pretty harmless way to kind of rebel and have fun by dancing with your friends. So I don't know. I thought that seemed kind of cool and more relatable to me as a kid than Purple Rain, which seemed much more like adults living in an adult world than high school kids, which I could relate to really well as a almost junior high kid at the time. That's true. And we both actually grew up in Oklahoma where that film was set. So so that probably does hit closer to home. But yeah. overall, Mark is going to vote Footloose and I'm going to vote Purple Rain. And we both vote for... Surely you can't be serious being mm-hmm. amazing. Thank you for asking for our feedback. Love you guys. Oh my gosh. I just want to wrap them up in a little present <laughs> and stick them in my pocket. They are the cutest couple I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> they are awesome. They're my dear friends. Melissa is an absolute 80s junkie and so is Mark. So she can't wait for our Duran Duran episode that we're going to do next year. So I'm excited for that one as well. Uh, Melissa is always very interactive with us on Facebook and uh, has given us some really gold nuggets as far as information goes over the last couple of years. So thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate you guys doing this for us. It means so much to us. Uh, thank you for being followers of the podcast. I love that she thinks Purple Rain is deep. <laughs> Melissa, thank you very much. And understanding the depth of Apollonia and Prince in Purple Rain. Did you watch rated, rated R movies in 1984? Uh, how am I going to answer that without getting grounded? <laughs> well, bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
If you want to contribute to our Shirley Showcase, send us an email at ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. One more time for old Tom's sake. I'm deaf and to my left is Jimmy D and to my right on the mic is Jason C. Four weeks in a row on the Shirley Airwaves, a guest spot on the show. Well, it's got to be Deaf Dave's. Where's your hip hop expert? Well, here he is. All the knowledge that I drop. You got to be serious. You ask me how I am. It's not that fear. Oh, man, I totally messed it up. Oh. expert well here he is all the knowledge that i drop make suckers furious you ask me how i am it's not that mysterious surely you can't be serious a top down <laughs> turn it up brass monkey in a cup turn in for final judgment you will find what's up how devastating can a podcaster be my name is david but you can call me d that is awesome dude way to it. go man I, I can't believe you did that that's so good <laughs> 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 oh man that's fantastic